Welcome back to my YouTube channel and my podcast. I'm Lydia McGrew. I'm going to continue my series on the name statistics argument in the Gospels and Acts for their historical reliability. It was promoted uh, originally by Richard Balcom, and there has been a recently published article by two authors, Gregor and Blaze, critiquing Balcom's argument. Right now I'm talking about disambiguation. <clears throat> I talked about that last time, and <clears throat> today I'm going to continue talking about a different kind of argument from disambiguation. The argument I talked about last time concerned what I called narrative clumps, name clumps, and the way that this is an argument for reliability in reporting names. You can go back and watch that. I'm not going to recap that because we've got material to get to today. Today I'm going to talk about what I consider to be narratively unnecessary disambiguators. And I'll probably be continuing this next time as well. And I'll talk there more about what I mean by narratively unnecessary, or I sometimes call them out of the blue. One way to be narratively unnecessary is for there to be very few persons of that name in that document. Or maybe this is the only person of that name in that document, or maybe even throughout the entirety of the Gospels and Acts. Um, this means that to disambiguate is not needed for the audience to understand within the narrative context of the document, because there's only one person by that name. So I want to show today how that can be an argument for uh, reliability, and I'll be trying to talk about this some more next time. Uh, and today I'm going to talk about two such narratively unnecessary disambiguations for Jesus and Lazarus. Start with Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is probably the only Jesus in all of the Gospels and Acts as a character in the stories. There are some manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew that also have the name Jesus as a first name for the insurrectionist Barabbas. I'm inclined to think that that is actually a scribal error. Um, you can count there as being two, but of course there's no danger of confusing those in the narrative. Um, and I think it's likely that it's just, you know, just Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus or Joshua was a very popular name in that time and that place. It was uh, number six. Balcom gives it as number six. So it's what I would call a tier A name. And yet there's only one. But it's very interesting to see how he's disambiguated in the stories. Jesus himself, Jesus of Nazareth. This, by the way, shows how the disambiguation argument is separate from the name statistics argument. Not separate in the sense that they can be completely disentangled, obviously, but in the sense that it has its own force aside from just pointing out uh, similarities between name distributions in the Gospels and in the population. 
Jesus of Nazareth is not a person whose existence Gregor and Blaise contest. In their article, they make it quite clear that they're not Jesus mythers. They're not contesting the name of uh, the that this person was named Jesus of Nazareth and that he really existed. And yet the disambiguation surrounding his name in the stories actually is a very interesting evidential point. So I want to talk about that a bit. The most striking point, and I want to credit Peter J. Williams for this in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Um, he, I got it from him. I just, I, I, this is not original with me. The narrator of the Gospels does not disambiguate Jesus as if, you know, someone might, might not be sure who he is. This makes sense because the narrator is writing in the first instance for a Christian audience, or at least an audience that's familiar with Christianity. And so, they're only thinking of one person named Jesus. They're not going to be confused. So it'll be like, Jesus said this, Jesus went there, Jesus did that, um, in the voice of the narrator. But in the voices of the persons in the story, the characters in the story, there's almost always, I only know of one exception to this, there's almost always a disambiguator used. The most common of these is Jesus of Nazareth, but that's not the only one. In fact, we find other disambiguators used um, and we find them used in stories that are unique to the individual gospels. So here, here are some examples. Um, Mark 10.47, the blind beggar Bartimaeus hears this commotion, he's in Jericho, asks what's going on, and when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, he starts calling out, asking him to heal him, asking him to have mercy upon him. So just hearing, you know, there's some guy named Jesus passing by, that's not going to tell him that this is someone who's believed to be a miracle worker. But specifically when he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth passing by, then he starts calling out. Uh, Mark 14, 67 one of the accusations against Simon Peter in the passages about his denial. You were with Jesus the Nazarene. Okay? And they, they can tell that because of his accent that gets brought out. The Galileans had a specific accent. Jesus the Nazarene. Matthew 21 11, after the triumphal entry. Um, this is unique in Matthew. People are wondering, you know, who is this guy? Like, why is there such a big to do being made about his coming in and they're answered uh, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee this kind of elaborate long explanation of which Jesus it is that's the answer John 6 uh, this is in the middle of Jesus uh, bread of life discourse where he's saying he, he came down from heaven and the people are sort of wondering what does that mean he came down from heaven and they say is this not Jesus the son of Joseph so that's another uh, disambiguation for him um, and by the way John doesn't contain an infancy narrative so this is his own reference to Jesus being the son of Joseph but it's in the mouth of the people in the story um, 
bouncing back to John 1, 45. Philip believes that he's discovered the Messiah. So he goes to his friend Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So it puts both of those together. Um, in all the preaching in Acts, when Peter or somebody else, you know, stands up, they're telling people who might not know the story, they'll say, you know, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene to tell them which one they're talking about. It's very consistent. The only uh, exception that I know of is the man born blind in John 9, who says, um, who says the man named Jesus, you know, so he's like, not really sure who he was, but otherwise it's, it's exceptionless. And so it shows that even though the authors themselves don't feel a need as narrators to explain which Jesus, they're reporting incidents where people are using that, which would make sense because it's one of the most popular names of the time and it hadn't become, you know, tied to this one historical person because he was just doing his ministry. And so people, when they wanted to say this is Yeshua, they would say something to show which Yeshua. Um, I want to contrast this with the Gospel of Mary, uh, so-called second century apocryphal gospel. This again is something Williams brings out. Jesus is just called the Savior. So there's, there's absolutely no awareness um, of you know, his specific name and the specific way he would have been referred to at the time. Now, as always, if you're determined, you can make up one of those sort of Cartesian deceiver um, theories where they're doing this, you know, elaborate thing, which then nobody noticed for 2000 years. And they're saying, I know, you know, I'll, um, even though I, as the narrator, am just going to refer to Jesus, um, I'm going to uh, put it into the mouths of my characters to call him Jesus, the son of Joseph or Jesus of Nazareth to make it look more authentic. Um, even though my audience may not even notice that or think that it lends authenticity to it. That's, you can always make up some kind of elaborate deception scenario like that, um, even in cases where it probably wouldn't do the deceiver any good, but that's not a good way to argue, and it's certainly not something that uh, counts as some kind of statistical critique. Um, so, disambiguation of the name Jesus. And let me also point out that even though Gregor and Blaze do not contest the existence of Jesus, no doubt they would question uh, various of these specific stories. But this is an argument for the authenticity of the stories, the authenticity of that language uh, in the mouths of the characters from the uh, pre-70 Israelite culture right there in that region and in that time where there were a lot of people named Jesus. All right, I want to move on to Lazarus. Now, there is only one person named Lazarus, or Eleazar, presented as a historical character in the Gospels and Acts. There's also a Lazarus named in one of Jesus' parables, 
but in general, consistently in Ilan, um, she's not counting people who are just openly fictional in her statistics. So to be consistent, uh, we don't want to be counting that person in the in a parable because it's clearly a parable Jesus is telling. Um, now this is a statistical outlier. There's no question that this is a statistical outlier. But as Balcom points out, and there really isn't a whole lot more to be said about this, the sample size is pretty small anyway. Balcom's sample size is 79. I would argue for a sample size of 83. Um, of course, Gregor and Blaze have a sample size of uh, 53 because they've mutilated the sample, but none of these is a very big sample. And in a relatively small sample, you're going to expect some statistical outliers. There's really not a whole lot more to be said uh, about that as like evidence against historicity. When you look at the entire shape and sweep of the gospel narratives and their um, named statistical evidence, uh, this is this is an exception. And overall, the argument is pretty robust of a, a pretty good match between the Gospel and Acts name statistics and that of the time as reflected in uh, Ilan's database. So that's like about all there is to be said about, yeah, you know, like super, super weakly, you could call this evidence against historicity. But as we shall see, uh, Gregor and Blaze preferred theories have no better explanation of this slight anomaly. In fact, it would be an anomaly for those theories as well. Um, so, I mean, that's just the kind of thing that happens. But an interesting point is that there is a classic form, narratively unnecessary disambiguation of the name of Lazarus in the only story in which he appears in John 11. He says, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. So this is where he's going to die, and then Jesus is going to come and raise him from the dead. But it's just the way it kicks off. You know, it's just very classic. A certain man, this guy, was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, um, that, that place, you know, place of residence or place of origin, pretty classic form, uh, disambiguator. So again, we can see that he might very well have been known as Lazarus of Bethany at the time as a real person who existed and John's reporting this um, and that just comes out very naturally in John's narrative this is the way that this man could have very well been known because there were a lot of people named Eliezer at the time now what I want to do at this point since I'm talking about Lazarus is go into a very weak very 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 weak, um, misguided part of the argument in Gregor and Blaze's article. Uh, it doesn't concern disambiguation. They don't discuss disambiguation, but it concerns Lazarus. And they attempt to claim that they actually have an explanation for the rareness of Lazarus in the Gospels and Acts, and that this is somehow, uh, you know, better than a reality, you know, just what the guy's name was, and it just happens to be the only person that comes up in the stories. 
um, in this relatively small sample size, better than that, uh, better than historicity, they think they have something better. Very, very misguided. So one of their supposed sources of name statistics that they think the gospel authors could have been drawing on for then making up people are the Maccabees, the books of Maccabees. And I'll be talking more in later videos about their alleged, you know, sources for name statistics. Um, a lot of those very, very popular first century Palestinian names are Maccabean names, which kind of makes sense because the events in uh, the Maccabees from the, you know, immediate centuries preceding Christ were uh, vivid to people and important to people. Um, so then they, they suggest that the gospel authors might have uh, drawn, might have somehow known that Maccabean names were popular and then drawn from Maccabean names to, um, to make up people, okay? Um, but Eleazar is a very popular Maccabean name. So if that's one of your theories, why are there so few Eliezers, right? If they, they're drawing, if the gospel authors are drawing from the Maccabees and they're supposedly going, oh, you know, Maccabean names were popular in Palestine. Somehow they know this, even if they're writing from, you know, Egypt or something. Um, somehow they've divined that Maccabean names were popular at the time. Then why not Eliezer? And it's, you know, there is there is no explanation. If, they're, if that's where they're getting them from, that would be an anomaly there as well. Uh, they also suggest as another potential source for the gospel authors to somehow figure out approximate name statistics and then use that for purposes of invention, Josephus, the writings of Josephus, which have a lot of stories, you know, set in... Uh, happening, occurring in Israel at the time. And actually Josephus matches Ilan pretty well uh, as well. The whole works of Josephus, of course, it's a larger data set. Um, there are just a couple outliers. I think Herod and I think Alexander may be outliers in Josephus, which just shows you there are, there are outliers. Um, but they especially suggest Josephus, the works of Josephus, as a source for name statistics for Luke Acts, okay, because that's been suggested in the scholarship. I don't think Josephus is a source for Luke Acts. In fact, some of the most prominent alleged contradictions between uh, the Gospels and external history are alleged between Acts and, uh, and Luke and Josephus, but um, they suggest that. But Eliezer is really common in Josephus, and it doesn't occur even once as the name of a historical character in Luke or Acts. The story of the raising of Lazarus is only in John. So if, you know, if you're going to lean on this, hey, you know, the works of Josephus could have been used by the author of Luke Acts to say, oh, you know, that's, those seem to be popular names at that place and time. I'll use these to, you know, make people up. Okay, why, why isn't it there? Um, why, why aren't there Lazarus's, Eliezer's, in invented alleged historical characters um, or even contested, maybe we should call them, 
in Luke. All right, now they have a quote, and I want to read this from their, from their paper. Quote, while it was a Maccabean name, no Christian named Eliezer slash Lazarus is known outside Gospels Acts. And the name features neither among the 12 apostles nor among Jesus' siblings. This presumed difference in a level of exposure to the name Eliezer slash Lazarus, when compared, for example, to Simon, might offer at least some reason why we observe as many as four Gospels Acts characters named Simon outside the lists of the 12 apostles and Jesus' siblings. In contrast, the name Eliezer slash Lazarus is underrepresented in Gospels Acts, despite its popularity in the contemporary population. End quote. Now, to explain what they're talking about here, and I'll reiterate this later, one of their uh, sort of fictionalization, sources for fictionalization that they suggest, which is completely illicit, is that there were portions that we now have only within the Gospels and Acts that actually circulated separately from the Gospels and Acts. And these would be um, the list of the 12 and the list of Jesus' siblings, his, his brothers. Um, and the idea is that these, which may or may not have been historical in and of themselves, are now treated not as part of the Gospels and Acts, not even part of Mark, even though they're in Mark, which they consider to be the first Gospel, but are treated as if they're separate pieces of literature almost, like Josephus or the books of the Maccabees, um, which then the authors of the Gospels and Acts are supposedly drawing on for making up people separately outside of the lists of, of the 12 disciples in the lists of Jesus' siblings. And that's completely illicit. We have, we have zero evidence for the circulation separately of standardized lists prior to the Gospel of Mark of Jesus' siblings and um, the list of the 12 um, in, in such a way that they should, we should treat them as if they're extra-biblical sources. This is entirely conjecture and then what they're trying to do is they're instead of you know giving them credit for the accuracy of the name statistics as even reflected in the lists of the twelve, um, they're trying to set the the list of the twelve as some kind of alternative to reality for a uh, knowledge of name statistics on the part of the gospel authors and. and you know, disambiguation fits with this too, because we find the, in the list of the 12, we find the um, common names disambiguated and the uncommon names not disambiguated. We, we talked about that last time uh, with Thaddeus, where Luke uh, doesn't have Thaddeus and does have Judas, son of James. This, by the way, also argues for the independence of Luke's um, evidence, because he has a somewhat different form of the list of the 12. He uses a different disambiguator for uh, the other Simon, uh, and he also has this Judas son of James and doesn't have Thaddeus. So 
this is just completely wrong to act as though these lists are these separate, almost literary or uh, sources for oral fictionalization from which to draw in the Christian community. But uh, there's even more. They, they seem to be saying that the absence of any other Christian named Eliezer, for example, in the Church Fathers, is somehow helping us to understand the explanation for the low occurrence of Eliezer. So, for example, they, they have a um, footnote and they mention that there are two allegedly fictional characters named Eliezer in the Clementine homilies. Um, but then they're like, it's, it's really rare. Well, but that is part of the explanation or part of the data, excuse me, to be explained. We're trying to figure out why in the Christian document we are curious. And I think it's just a, a random, a random outlier. But at this point in Gregor and Blaise's paper, the thing to be explained is Christians having relatively few Eliezer's in their, uh, their works, in the things that they're writing. So on their argument, um, the Gospels and other Christian authors, like the author of the Clementine Homilies, are inventing persons based on outside sources like the Maccabees and Josephus. So we still have the question, why are there not more Christian persons or followers of Jesus that we find named Eliezer? Um, supposedly, at this point in their argument, they think, well, you know, uh, the Christian community really had some knowledge of Palestinian name statistics, and they, um, you know, based their made-up persons on that. Well, you know, to the extent that that's their argument, then the, the small number of Eliezer's, either in, uh, you know, early Christian documents like apocryphal gospels or in the gospels themselves is itself the thing to be explained and they haven't provided a good uh, alternative explanation. Certainly the seriousness with which elsewhere in their paper they take uh, dependence on Josephus and dependence on the Maccabees would make this an outlier for their theory as well. Okay, so to sum up, disambiguation is an argument of its own for historicity, um, aside from the sheer number of name statistics. And last time I talked about how disambiguation in clumps can be such an argument, and this time I've talked about how disambiguation in the case of utterly uh, narratively unnecessary names can also be such an argument particularly in Jesus and Lazarus. Now, next time, I want to admit uh, that there are actually two narratively unnecessary cases of disambiguation for low-frequency names. And I want to talk about some other instances of narratively unnecessary disambiguations for high-frequency names. And I want to see how that, um, that frequency of narratively unnecessary disambiguations stacks up as compared with uh, low and high frequency names at the time. So I'm not trying to hide evidence against historicity, um, even though I think it's 
quite weak evidence against historicity, but I'm trying to show you how disambiguation adds to this. And don't worry, we will get off the subject of disambiguation eventually and back to other parts of Brethren Blay's paper. Thanks for watching. Please come back next time to the Lydia McGrew channel where we're making common sense rigorous.